All right, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Grass withers, flowers fade away, but the Word of God stands forever. Let me pray for us as we begin to look at it further. Heavenly Father, we, um, as we always do, we... We stop to take a moment to ask you to teach us, because left to ourselves, uh, we would not, our our ears would not hear. We need your Holy Spirit to be here. Uh, We are, uh, in and of ourselves, we're weak. And so would you be here by your Holy Spirit, and would um, would you give us eyes to see, so that we might see something of ourselves and our sin, and even more something of you and your grace and your mercy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I can remember watching a TV show or a movie, I don't remember which, with a good friend of mine. This is a long time ago. I was probably, you know, fifth, sixth grade, something like that. And there was a, uh, some sort of prison scene on the show or a movie that we were watching. And she had this really interesting comment about, about prison that stuck with me. This was like what, almost 25 25 years or more. And she said this. She said, you know what I don't get about prison as a fifth or sixth grader? Why do people in prison not treat it more like camp? Why don't they basically look and say, like, okay, we've got to be here, so why don't we make the most of it? Why don't we just get along and have a good time and do fun stuff? I mean, we're, we're here. Let's get along and do fun things. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a pretty good question. Why would they not just get along, right? It would, if you think about it, it would make a lot more sense if they did. They would enjoy life more. And while there's some obvious problems with that, if you think about it for just a minute, it's not just people in prison, certainly. Right? Wouldn't, wouldn't life be a lot better if we all just got along? If we were all more together, right? If we, were, if we were unified. So it would be a great thing, but it's really hard to do. Like how in the world could you take, a, a, you know, prisoners? How could you take a bunch of bad, really bad people and get them to, to work together and get along? How, how could you do that? Would it even be possible? And actually, I think, as strange as it might sound... That's what Paul's talking about in this passage. I think Paul's answer would be, yeah, that could happen. You could take bad people that care about themselves, that are really different from one another, and make them get along. It's actually called the church. And so that's what we see in this passage. This semester we're studying through Philippians, which is a letter that Paul has written to this church in Philippi. And it's a letter that's filled with joy. 
And he's communicating about the joy that he has and about the joy that these Philippians uh, can have, encouraging them in their joy. And he's writing from prison. So each week, you know, if you've been with us, you know our theme. We're looking at real joy in the midst of real life. That's our theme. And in this passage, we see that God, through Paul, tells us a little bit about the joy of being unified, the joy of being together. And he, in a sense, tells us how to do it. And so I want to look at three things tonight. First, we're going to look at the call to unity, verse 2. Secondly, we'll look at the grounds for unity, verse 1. And thirdly, we'll look at the how-to of unity, verses 3 and 4. So first, the call to unity. Again, you see it in verse 2. And we're, we're sort of, in a sense, going backwards here a little bit because we're really picking up in the middle of Paul's uh, thought about unity. If you were with us last week, you know that uh, Paul talked about basically, uh, if you're a believer, the world is going to oppose you. And really, the only way that you can handle that opposition, uh, he says, you have to be together. You have to be unified as believers. You have to be in Christian community. And so here Paul really reiterates his call for believers to be unified. See verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so for just for a second, I want you to think about the beauty of what Paul is calling these Christians and, and, and you today. The beauty of what he's calling you to. Think about the joy of being united to a group of people. Having a group of people that are are like-minded, like-spirited, that are on the same page in life as each other. You know, it would be a place where where you just fit. Where people get you and you get each other. A place where you're accepted, and not just accepted, but where you're embraced. A place where you really feel at home, where you can be yourself, and you can be honest, and yet you're accepted. Right? A group of people that have the same mission, that are going the same direction, that are so together that it provides a place where you don't have to be alone. Where you don't have to be alone facing the opposition of the world where you don't even have to face your own sin, the way that you and and the way that I'm wrecking our own lives. You don't have to face that alone. A group of people that are so knit together that you don't have to face the, the difficulties and struggles of life by yourself, but you have people with you. Right? Wouldn't that bring great joy? Maybe you've had a little taste of that experience. With uh, Maybe you can think of your, your best friend or your best friend or two. Especially if that friend is somewhere else, right? If they're away, uh, they've gone to another school or whatever. You know what it's like when you get back together with that, with that one or those two good friends. Those people, or, or maybe it's your family. Th- those few people that just really get you. Where you really feel at home. What, if, what about a whole community of that? It's what, it's what we're called to. And it's a beautiful thing. In fact, it's so beautiful. It's one of the main things that Jesus prays for right before he's arrested and killed. In what we call the high priestly prayer, John 17. Jesus prays for this. Listen, uh, John 17, 20 through 23. 
He says, I do not ask for these only, talking about his disciples that are right there. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Now that might be kind of hard to track, but I think you could at least get the main idea, right? Jesus is praying. Jesus says, look, this is believers being united together. People being united together is such a beautiful thing that it actually, he parallels it with the the unity of the Trinity. Because you're united to Christ, you're going to be united to one another. And it's going to be so attractive, so beautiful, that the world is going to see it and, and is going to be drawn in. Why? Because that just doesn't happen. People are really different than each other. We're going to talk about the problem here in just a second. But because think about who the church is. The church is all kinds of different people, different races, different nationalities, different economic backgrounds, different uh, ages. You know, every difference imaginable comes together in the church. And if there's unity there, it's going to be a beautiful thing to see. And the world's going to be attracted to it. You know, I don't know if this is fair, but... You, Certainly you've seen a school of fish swimming together or a flock of birds flying together. And you know how they, they move seamlessly together. Something gets in their way and it, it looks like one thing moving. And it's really elegant. It's beautiful. In a sense, that's what we're called to as, as believers. And I think, you know, whether you're a believer or not, that has to sound good. But there's a big problem, right? There's a big problem. And the problem is... Well, is us. People are individuals. We're all different. And here's the unfortunate truth about how we all come into this world. We all come into this world defaulting to caring about ourselves more than anything else. My default is that I care about me more than anything else in this world. And the same is true for you. And so here's the deal. Caring for ourselves, an enormous part of that is that you and I are desperate to know that, that we're okay. We're, we're in a de- life, in a sense, is this sort of desperate uh, journey to, to find value, to find worth, to know that I am, I am special, that I, I'm worth something. We all have to know that we matter. And so that means that to the degree... The the degree to which you're not for me is the degree to which you're a threat to me. Because my default is that I have to matter. I care about me. And you care about you. So fundamentally, in our natural state, you're a threat to me. And I'm a threat to you. And threats have to be either eliminated or mitigated in some form or fashion. I have to be special. I have to be the funniest. I have to be the smartest. I have to be, you know, whatever it is for you. The coolest, the most athletic, whatever way you try to find it. And any way that somebody else infringes on that is a threat. 
And so we're at war. If your culture threatens mine, your theology, your political views, uh, people seem to like you a little more, they listen to you more, whatever it is, that's a threat. And you have to go, in a sense. A good friend of mine uh, has told me about his, uh, his freshman year of college. When he started his freshman year, he was always used to being the life of the party. He's this very gregarious, outgoing, fun-loving guy. And he's just sort of a people magnet. People love this guy. And so that's what he was used to. And he got to college, and his friend group sort of broadened a little bit. And there was this other guy that came into his friend group that was really the same way. And he actually began to perceive that, that this guy was a li- People seemed to think he was a little funnier, a little cooler. People tended to follow him just a little bit more. And it was a huge threat. And he said he consciously took... He had to double down and I've got to work harder to make people laugh a little harder. He took every opportunity, he said, to, to in whatever way take that guy down just a little bit. Just paint him in a you know, slightly negative light. Because they're friends. That's in air quotes. Alright, so obviously if people are threats, there's no unity. There can't be. It'd be beautiful, but there's no unity. So what gives? That leads us to our second point. The grounds for unity. And you see it back in verse 1. Paul gives us the grounds, the, the, the whole reason that there can be unity. And his answer fundamentally is really no different than what you would probably think of. What, you know, what's, what one thing has to be true for a relationship to start? Or uh, maybe you can think of it the flip side. What, when a relationship never really gets off the ground, what was missing? I bet if we polled you, a lot of you probably say, well, we just didn't have anything in common. Fundamentally a friendship, right? It's based on having something in common. And that's really what Paul says in verse 1. Paul says, so, if, and look, let me go ahead and say, Paul's going to say, if, if there is any of these things. And he's basically saying, since these things are true. Sometimes you hear me say it. I might say something like, you know, if Jesus loves us the way he does, then whatever, right? And I mean, since Jesus loves us, that's what Paul's doing. So, if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... It says, if these things, or since these things, are true, then live as one. Live unified. So what's Paul saying? What is this if? What's true? I think we could sum those things up by basically saying the gospel. Since you are, if you're a believer, that means you are in Christ. If there's any encouragement in the fact that you are in Christ, if you've been comforted by his love in any way, Or since you have been. Since you're all partakers of the same Holy Spirit. Then live as one. So Paul basically says, look, you have the gospel in common. You have this common experience of the gospel. So if you think about it, what does that mean? He's saying, look, you have the most important thing in the world in common with each other. The fundamental aspect of your very being, you hold that in common. And if you hold that in common, then everything else is going to fall into perspective. Everything else is going to fall into place. 
Because you hold the common experience. What's the gospel? You have the common experience uh, of knowing that by God's grace, uh, you know that I am a sinner. That I have, that I'm a screw up. That I have made a wreck of my life. That I've been an enemy of God. that, That I am the problem. And yet, at the same time, you have the common experience of knowing that God has moved towards you and loved you. That He's given Himself, He's given His Son for you. That He's brought you into His family, He's adopted you, He's given you His righteousness. That's what you have in common. And if you have that in common, then then all the other things that you don't have in common, or in other words, all your differences, those fall into perspective. They take a back seat. I thought about illustration. I thought about, uh, uh, if you think about basically every buddy movie, right? Any sort of movie, uh, I, I texted a friend, like, hey, what about an illustration of, you know, uh, I gave him my idea, and he said, his response was, how about every movie ever? It's a little extreme, but it's close. Right? You know what I'm talking about, the buddy movie, where you have two people that are very different from one another, and yet they end up in the same uh, situation because they have the same kind of you know, uh, goal, or they end up on the same journey, and they become best friends. Right? For my generation, it was Tommy Boy. Um, has anybody even seen Tommy Boy? All right, yeah, okay, good. Could have just gone with that one. Uh, remember the Titans? We seen Remember the Titans? Okay, good, good. It was 16 years ago it came out. How about that? So remember the Titans. Think about that one. What, what happens? It's not necessarily an individual, but you have a group of people, groups of people. You've got African Americans. You've got white people. That uh, new coach comes in, and there's a lot of racial strife. They, they, they have a lot of differences, but they have one thing in common. And what is it? They all love football. And because they love football and they want to win, because they have that in common, everything else sort of falls into perspective. They're able to, they're able to, to deal with their differences and unify because they have a common experience. So how can we begin to have unity? Well, like we've been saying, because we have the gospel in common. If the most central thing in our life is that we know the same Savior, that you and I have a mutual friend, so to speak, then our differences, whatever they may be, uh, that we differ over worship style, or that we differ over political views, or that we differ over our, the color of our skin, our, our theolo- petty theological differences, our personal preferences over who knows what. All those things are going to be put into perspective and take a back seat to the very fact that we have the common experience of the gospel. All right, so that's sort of the the macro idea that Paul gives us, kind of the main idea. You can be unified because you have the gospel in common. So thirdly, I want you to see uh, see sort of the how-to of unity because Paul sort of narrows the scope down and kind of focuses in a little bit in verse 3 and 4. Tells us what it looks like. How's that going to play out in our everyday lives? How does the gospel really connect to being unified to other people? That's what we see in verses 3 and 4. So verses 3 and 4 are parallel to each other, parallels of each other. And in them, 
I think you'll see that Paul tells us, tells them and us, to not do something. And then he tells us to do something. The beginning of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4. So we'll look at those first. Beginning of verse 3 and verse 4. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. In the beginning of verse 4, look not only to your own interests. You see, those are parallel thoughts. So we're called to not do things out of rivalry or conceit. You could, conceit could be translated vain glory, right, for ourselves. Don't do things out of looking for your own interests or rivalry. Who are, so who are your rivals? What does it mean to be a rival? If you're a Baylor fan, TCU. Is TCU the biggest rival? It's fair to say, isn't it? It's the rival. If you're, you know, I went to Ole Miss. For Ole Miss folks, it's Mississippi State. And so what's, what's your relationship to your rival? Yes, you want yourself or your school, we want Baylor to win. But they're our rival. You also want your rival to lose. Ole Miss, I'm sure every school in the nation, people say something like, the next best thing to an Ole Miss win is a Mississippi State loss. Next best thing to a Baylor win is a TCU loss. You want you to go up and you want your rival to go down. Right, you could think back to my college, my friend from college. That other guy was his rival. He wanted to see himself go up and the other guy come down. And Paul tells us, look, a big how-to, what unity is going to look like, how you achieve unity, uh, is to not operate out of rivalry. Right, so how in the world would you do that? How could you operate in a way not out of rivalry? Well, that would mean... The only way we could do that is if we didn't see other people as threats. Well, how could, how could we not see other people as threats? And the only way that can happen is if we know that we, if we know ourselves to be safe and secure. The only way you're not a threat to me is if I know who I am. If my identity, my value, my worth, who I am at the end of the day, if that's settled... If that's not going anywhere, if you can't affect it, then you're not a threat to me, and you're not my rival. And that takes us back to the common experience of the gospel. If you're a believer, what encouragement do you have in the love of Christ, the fact that you're in Christ? You have the beautiful truth to know that your identity is child of God, that your identity is His righteousness that He's given you. You have the identity of knowing that you're loved by the Creator, not because of anything you did, but just because He loves you. And He loves you so much that He says you're His treasured possession. That's your identity. And since that's true, then I don't have to fight with you to get my worth. Because it's safe. So what would that look like? I mean, I don't have to tear other people down. I I don't have to pass on that little piece of of sort of juicy news that's going to make that person look a little worse and it's going to make me a little better. I don't have to do that. I don't have to put on, it means I don't have to put on the mask for everybody else to get you to think that that I'm something that I'm not. I don't have to operate out of vain glory or conceit. I don't have to always be running my own PR campaign and and trying to manipulate everyone's perception of me. 
I can give up the, the vainglory of making sure that other people see how, how either spiritual I am or how studious I am or how, how hip and cool and with it I am, whatever it is. I, I, I can begin to give that up. It probably has a lot to do with what we post on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and those sorts of things if you think about it. It's rivalry. It doesn't mean those things are inherently wrong, of course. It's rivalry and it creates disunity. It means I don't have to store up ammunition against my roommate. I don't have to store up the ammunition of wrong things that she does so that I can prove myself right. It means I don't have to relish when she does something wrong or he does something wrong and I hang on to that because I have to be right. Or whatever else it might look like for you. And I think if you're honest, if you take a few minutes and you start to examine why you do what you do, if you're like me, I think you'll find a lot of your motivation. I know a lot of my motivation. It's this. I'm operating out of rivalry, managing what people think about me. I want to build myself up, put others down. But the gospel begins to answer that and it sets us free from it. All right, so secondly, uh, Paul tells us something actually to do. He says, don't operate out of rivalry or conceit. But in, uh, at the end of verse 3, in the end of verse 4, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Parallel with the concept of look to the interests of other people. In humility, count other people more significant, more, in a sense, more valuable than yourself. That because of the, the gospel, because I don't have to fight for my value and worth because it's been given to me, that I can actually begin to, to build other people up. I can actually look to other people and care about them because I have everything that I need. I don't have to seek my interests. My interests are okay. I'm safe. I can actually seek yours. I thought about it like this. If you and I, if we were both or all of us literally starving, desperate for food, then, you know, at the end of the day, you're just a threat. You're just one more hungry mouth that can take what I need. But if I have all the food that I need, then I can begin actually to to look outward and, and help you find food or give you some of mine. You're not a threat. I can actually move towards you and your interests because I'm set. So what does that look like? It looks like that I can begin to actually care about what's important to you. I can actually, I can actually look at you and say, I'm sorry. I can actually be willing to be wrong for the sake of, of our relationship. It means that I can actually begin to look at myself and realize I'm the bigger problem here. I can assume that of myself. I'm the bigger problem than you. It means I can give up my preferences about whatever it might be and be willing to give in to yours. It means, I can, means we can begin to move towards people in their pain. And we can begin to relieve it. And what I want you to see is that as we do that, it actually creates unity. As you begin to put down your own interests because of 
the good news of the gospel, and you begin to move towards other people and, and consider them more important than yourself, look to their interests, I mean, it, that will create unity. And it, basically end with this illustration. I want to go back to my friend in college and just, you know, frame the whole sermon up with this guy. I want to tell you, I want to tell you how the story ends. Because it's pretty fascinating. So there they are going through their freshman year, and my friend considers this other guy a rival. And he's building himself up, putting him down. And so until what happens? Until the other guy, okay, the rival, comes to my friend, and he comes to him and in all honesty and in, in real humility, he apologizes to my friend. And he says, I'm sorry. I feel like I've been competing against you because I see you as, essentially I see you as a threat to me. And and so I've been doing what I can to build myself up and, you know, kind of make you not in the best light. And I'm sorry. Or you see what's happening, right? The other guy admitted to this because it was true of him. And as soon as he repented to my friend, it, it broke my friend. And he repented to that guy. And they became really good friends and are still really good friends to this day. Because that guy could basically look at himself and say, you know, I'm secure in the gospel because of who Jesus is, what he's done for me. I I know who I am and I can take an honest look at my sin and see that I'm wrong here. And, And I can actually admit that. And I can go to this guy in humility. I can consider him more significant than myself. I can go in and say, I'm sorry. And what happened? It actually created unity. It's a beautiful thing. And it was motivated by the gospel, which is exactly what Paul talks about in the next few verses that we'll look at uh, next week. He, he, he grounds it in the gospel here in our passage. And he's going to give the example in uh, next week, or you know, next few verses, of Jesus. He's going to give the example of Jesus, how Jesus humbled himself by becoming flesh, by becoming a baby, and by living in this sinful world, and then by, you know, you probably are familiar with the passage, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But what I want you to see, last thought, is that he didn't do it primarily to be an example to us. Jesus didn't come and do the whole, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, Jesus thing. He didn't come and live a perfect life and then die on a cross to say like, okay, see, that's how it's done. Yes, it does serve as an example to us. That's not primarily why he did it. Primarily why he did it is because he wanted to be one with you. He wanted to unite himself to me and you. So he took on our sin and our shame. He took on our rivalry and our conceit and all of our self-centeredness. He took it on himself and he bore it on the cross. And it cost him his life. It cost him that separation with the Father, bearing his wrath, and and it brought us together. And it's only joy in that unity that can begin to give us unity with each other. And that's that's what Jesus offers to you right now.
And I, I hope you take it, maybe for the first time, even tonight. Let me pray for us. Jesus, what you have done for us is almost unimaginable. We certainly would have never imagined it. We had other designs of what a good king would look like. But you came and suffered and died for us because you wanted to be wed to us, united with us. Jesus, I pray that that truth would be true, reign true in every heart in here. And if that's not the case, would you make it so? And would you do that even tonight? And would you cause all of us to live out of that truth and to be, seek to be unified together with one another to reflect that? Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.